Hello, and welcome to the All Things ADHD podcast from CHAD's National Resource Center on ADHD. Welcome to another episode of today's podcast. My name is Dr. Tanya Miles, and I'm a licensed psychologist. Today's topic is on ADHD and trauma. Roughly 50 to 60% of people will have a traumatic event during the course of their lifetime. And sometimes those events result in traumatic symptoms and eventually can lead to PTSD. That isn't the case for everyone, but it certainly can for some. So we'll be talking a little bit about different types of trauma and how that impacts ADHD. So there is a relationship between the two. For those that with ADHD and PTSD combined tend to have higher rates of other comorbid diagnoses, weaker cognitive performance, and increased rates of injury. Certain ADHD symptoms make people more prone for experiencing traumatic events in their life, such as impulsivity, hyperactivity, and attention, all which can contribute to accidents, injury, negligence, other correlations with ADHD, such as poor health maintenance can lead to premature death. Any emotion regulation deficits can contribute to abuse and violence in relationships. Overall executive functioning deficits in ADHD can also contribute to stressors within the family and challenges in being a caregiver or parent, and which can increase the odds of having stress and tension and conflict within the family. So the timing of when a person is exposed to trauma can greatly affect the outcome of the symptoms. So for instance, neurodevelopment is extremely important during childhood while the brain's developing and any traumatic experiences during that stage can have longer or lasting effects. Developmental trauma is one area of trauma, but it is not technically a diagnosis in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. For mental health disorders. It was proposed, but was not accepted due to lack of empirical evidence. But it has been suggested as one for the effect that trauma symptoms can have on a child's neurodevelopment, their health, learning, and relationships. When children have experienced emotional abuse in childhood, there we see an increased risk of adolescent issues with insecure attachment and identity, problems with intimacy and empathy. So trauma is kind of a general term, but when we talk about diagnosing trauma, there's two routes for doing so. The DSM-5 criteria, which is put out by the American Psychiatric Association, includes five PTSD symptom clusters, the exposure to a traumatic event, and that would be actual or threatened, like such as death, serious injury, or sexual violence. It may also include repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of traumatic events. And if those symptoms occur longer than one month, then they meet criteria for diagnosis, along with traumatic intrusive re-experiencing 
of the traumatic event, avoidance of stimuli that reminds people of the traumatic experience, hyperarousal and or reactivity, negative changes in thoughts and moods, which you'll see is an overall shift in how people maybe see the world or how they interact with other people and generalize some of those negative fears or thoughts around other situations beyond the traumatic event. The symptoms would cause impairment in functioning or cause significant distress. So the ICD-11 diagnostic criteria, which is developed by the World Health Organization, has a very similar set of criteria for PTSD. The same traumatic exposure, re-experiencing, avoidance of stimuli, and hyperarousal and reactivity. In June 2018, the diagnosis of complex PTSD was introduced in the ICD-11, which is not included in the DSM at this time. Complex PTSD is different in that it has all of the other PTSD symptom criteria that was just mentioned, but it also has three additional elements. One, difficulty regulating emotions. Two, symptoms related to negative self-concept. And three, symptoms related to interpersonal problems, all of which relate to showing kind of the difficult nature of traumatic experiences that influenced how the person relates to other people and feelings that they deal with themselves. The symptoms also, again, would cause impairment in functioning and would last at least several weeks in order to meet criteria for diagnosis. Some overlapping symptoms between ADHD and trauma that we see in both disorders relate to inattention, restlessness or hyperactivity, distraction, sleep issues, emotional reactivity, impulsivity, and difficulties with memory and learning. There's a lifetime prevalence of PTSD that is significantly higher among adults with ADHD compared to others. Some say a difference of 10 to 1. And some research has shown that there is a family connection since ADHD is a disorder that has a genetic component that you often see in families that tends to be the case when you have ADHD and PTSD or any other type of trauma together. There's also some environmental circumstances that can make someone more vulnerable for experiencing trauma when having ADHD, such as having lower socioeconomic status, less education, exposure to a prior trauma, even if they didn't have experienced symptoms following that incident, parental separation or death, family dysfunction, lower IQ, being of minority status, there's a family psychiatric history, there's repeated reminders of exposure, subsequent adverse life events after being exposed to a traumatic event, and if there's financial or other loss related to the trauma. The younger a person is at the time of traumatic exposure or event, as well as the severity of the trauma, does increase a person's risk for developing PTSD afterward. If there's a perceived life threat, the threat on their life or personal injury, or if there's interpersonal violence, particularly if a caregiver is involved as either victim or perpetrator, 
or if a person dissociated during and persisted after the trauma, it also in all of those increase the risk for a person developing post-traumatic stress disorder at a later time. The trauma symptoms in children, particularly younger than age six, may look a little different besides the diagnostic criteria that was mentioned. Oftentimes, younger children will reenact some traumatic experiences in their play, or you might also see some separation anxiety, school avoidance, or some behavioral issues arise. Children and adolescents with ADHD overall tend to get hurt more often and more severely than peers without ADHD. They're significantly more likely to get injured while walking or riding a bicycle, have head injuries, injure more than one part of their body, be hospitalized for unintentional poisoning, or be admitted to intensive care units, or have an injury resulting in a disability, all which make the likelihood of trauma being increased. Some studies have shown that patients 18 years or younger with ADHD over the course of a five-year time span had a two-and-a-half-time increase in the prevalence of fractures compared to other kids that did not have ADHD. Emotional abuse and neglect are more common among men and women that have ADHD. And sexual abuse and physical neglect are more commonly reported by females with ADHD. Along with treatment for ADHD, some evidence-based treatments for PTSD include prolonged exposure therapy and some trauma-focused CBT and cognitive processing therapy. So some conditionally recommended treatments include brief eclectic psychotherapy, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization therapy, narrative exposure therapy, and the medications sertraline, paroxetine, fluoxetine, and venlafaxine. There's various other treatment options as well, such as somatic experiencing therapy, internal family systems, and brain spotting, just to name a few. When diagnosing, it's important to try to create a clinical timeline to determine the onset of symptoms and try to sort out what symptoms might be related to the trauma and what symptoms might be related to ADHD, including looking at functional impairments and how those shift over time. Getting collateral information is really helpful in any kind of pertinent family history, including psychiatric history for other members in the family. Sometimes we may ask about traumatic events or ask about abuse, but not everybody views those definitions the same. And so sometimes people will go on to describe some things that you as a clinician might deem traumatic, but may not necessarily feel traumatic to the person. It's important to take some cultural considerations and trying to view it in the context of what seemed like what was normal in their family. Even, again, it may have seemed normal for the situation, for the person, but it may not necessarily be healthy. And again, when we're talking about trauma, we're looking at what is overwhelming the person's nervous system and is continuing to have longer-term effects mentally and physically. So three questions to identify possible ADHD if you have someone that's presenting with uh, comorbid symptoms or with 
trauma and you're uncertain, you might ask, one, have you had longstanding and consistent problems with attention and distractibility? Two, have your current complaints been present over the last 10 or 20 years? And three, if I could see you in the classroom when you were a child, what would you be like? Because certainly when someone has trauma, attention, learning, being distracted easily can be present, especially if they've had trauma since they were a young child. So getting that long history of symptoms over the course of 10 to 20 years um, and seeing what those symptoms look like in multiple contexts, school, home, and with friends. It's very common for people with both ADHD and trauma to have comorbid diagnoses. So common co-occurring disorders for both ADHD and trauma is insomnia, major depression, anxiety and panic, substance use disorders, personality disorders, and for specifically traumatic brain injuries. One focus of treatment is making sure to discern between symptom reduction and initially trying to create just stabilization. In trauma, we talk about co-regulation, which is necessary for self-regulation. And ADHD is a disorder of difficulty with self-regulation. And co-regulation is something that we learn from parents, caregivers, or others when we're a child, and it helps our nervous system learn how to regulate. So when that has been disrupted, it's important to learn how to negotiate that with our current nervous system. We can do that by being present with the person and trying to use our own nervous system as a way to help the other person gets settled. Creating a safe space in which for treatment to occur helps create a healing space and allows for more of that co-regulation to occur. We also talk about the importance of mental flexibility, which can be a problem for people that have experienced trauma and also for people with ADHD symptoms. We know that there is the ability to have some problem solving, being able to look at a situation from a different point of view all helps in recovery and overcoming trauma symptoms. So that can be helpful to try to build on those skills. Another element in the treatment structure is neuroception, which is our awareness of what is happening internally and what's going on around us and then also between us. Sometimes when we've experienced trauma, we get fixated on the things and people around us as a way of being alert to things that could potentially harm us and trying to keep ourselves safe. So we're really good at reading other people, but it may make it more difficult for us to be as tuned into what's going on inside and how just some of our, even just our basic needs like hunger and tired and because we're so tuned into the external world. Learning to kind of read our own body signals and finding that better balance between internal and external is an important treatment feature. There are some protective factors that help protect people from the effects of trauma, such as social engagement, making sure that a person's basic needs are met, food, shelter, clothing, having access to safe schools and healthcare, and connection with at least one other caring individual is a very important 
protective factor. On an individual and family level, other protective factors include having positive supportive friendships, I think caring individuals within and outside of the family, which bring more support to the family unit, having a family that tends to be responsive, supportive, stable, that family that provides supervision to the kids and that can have fun together as fun is play. And especially with little kids, play is one of the ways that we can regulate our nervous system and kind of really builds connection. Individual characteristics such as optimism, high self-esteem, belief in ourselves, having hope and high intelligence are also individual protective factors against trauma. At a community level, other protective factors include financial stability and support, having safe quality childcare, school and after school options, having a connection to community resources, and adults having work opportunities and family-friendly policies at their job that allow for parenting. There are some things that make people more resilient in light of trauma, such as feeling a sense of perceived control in a situation, even if there's only a small part of a situation that they have some control over, being able to focus on that part can help them be more resilient. Self-regulation is a resilient skill, as is mental flexibility and problem solving. And the single most important factor for children in particular, but for all people who develop resilience, is having at least one stable and committed relationship with a supportive person. So just one person can make a huge difference. Other resilience factors can be like sense of humor and being able to manage stress in a constructive way and having some coping skills. For additional information about trauma and stress, check out ISTSS.org or for more ADHD information, visit chad.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the All Things ADHD podcast from Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD.